This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, the countdown to the referendum has begun. The Yes campaign for the Voice to Parliament is getting to work across Australia. Also, how big superannuation balances are being used by the super rich. We all like to pay as least amount of tax as we can legally. Um, so superannuation is an obvious and relatively simple thing to put your money into. You know that you're going to be taxed at a maximum rate of 15%. And in many cases, when people are properly retired, um, there's no tax on any of it. Who's going, to, who's going to pass that up as an opportunity? And almost a year since Russia invaded Ukraine, we'll reflect on a year of fierce battle and ask where to next for the war. Thanks for your company. The official launch of the Yes campaign for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Voice to Parliament is being held in Adelaide this evening. Hundreds of supporters have turned out for the event, many of them coming off two days of campaign workshops ahead of the launch. The referendum will happen between October and December this year, with Australians voting on whether to change the constitution to install a voice to parliament, which would act as an independent advisory body to government for First Nations people. Political reporter Dana Morse is there. Dana, this kickstarts a well-planned process for the Yes campaign, and there's certainly a lot on the line. So what are we learning about their strategy to win the support of a majority of people in a majority of states to change the constitution. Well, we got a little bit of an inkling of that after the campaign lab, uh, which were these workshops that have been held over the last couple of days. Now, we know that there was a lot of confidential information that was shared in those workshops regarding the strategy. But to some extent, it will mirror that strategy that we saw with the Teal campaigns that saw those community independents elected at the last federal election. So it's going to be very grassroots focused. There's going to be a lot of uh, kitchen table conversations is the the name of the strategy, essentially bringing people in uh, to talk about why they think they should be voting yes. And the idea is for one person to talk to a group of people who will then go on and talk to a group of people. So that real ripple effect. Let's take a listen to what one of the attendees at that meeting had to say. This is Daniel Rosendale. He's from Deadly Indigenous Youth Doing Good. Obviously, the end goal is a yes vote at the referendum. So we're going to be activating our people on the ground. We're going to be talking to people. We're going to be having conversations. We're going to be promoting the voice and we're going to be trying to convince as many people as possible why this is the step in the right direction for Australia. For me, you know, as a younger person coming in, walking in a room and identifying really staunch, powerful leaders that you've heard about, you know, or seen from a distance, to be able to sit in the same room with them, hear their voices and hear their passion behind the Yes Vote um, is really inspiring. And that's Daniel Rosendale from the Yes Camp. And Dana, it's been a politician-free event in Adelaide. Why is that? Uh, essentially, they're looking to depoliticise this campaign and take it out of the hands of the politicians where we've seen for the last couple of months there has been so much back and forth between the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, and particularly the opposition leader, Peter Dutton. So they're looking to take this away from the politicians and return it back to the people because the people on this side of the Yes campaign really do believe that they have the majority of the community support uh, and that this is getting bogged down in the politics side of things. So even though the PM 
Sam Anthony Albanese is in town in Adelaide today. Uh, He's not coming along to the launch. A lot of recent polls have reminded us that there's confusion around the voice. So just remind us, what is the voice to Parliament and, and why do advocates think it's needed? Well, the voice, uh, as the government have proposed it, is an advisory body. It will be a group of people who are elected by Indigenous people uh, to give the government advice on laws and policies that affect them. So it's talking about things like healthcare, like justice, and essentially trying to make public money that the government funds programs through more effectively spent. Because at the moment, we are seeing, particularly through closing the gap, uh, that we're not getting enough done to close that gap of life expectancy between Indigenous people and the rest of the population. Uh, So this will essentially be one way that we look to uh, improve those outcomes. And Dana, are we getting any clearer on the approach that the Federal Liberal Party will take on The Voice? Officially, we haven't really heard too much shift from the Federal Liberal Party in recent days. We know Peter Dutton did meet with the referendum working group last week. During that meeting, he said he supports constitutional recognition, he supports a voice, just not necessarily this particular model, uh, and that he thinks there are structural problems that we need to act on to solve. So, internally in those meetings, he's saying that, but then externally, he's saying that he doesn't currently think that the referendum is on track for success. Uh, it's it's kind of simple to extrapolate that potentially the Liberal Party is going to end up going for a conscience vote. Everyone will be voting their own way if that is the case, because some people have already come out from the Liberal Party and said they don't support the voice. Uh, so really, all eyes at the moment are on Peter Dutton, but we're not expecting them to reach an official position for some months to come. Political reporter Dana Morse there. Well, there's no formal policy yet, but the government is pushing ahead with plans to change superannuation rules by limiting tax breaks in the system for high earners. Assistant Treasurer Stephen Jones says reforms are needed to make superannuation more sustainable as the budget comes under pressure. But the opposition will attempt to block any changes to super in Parliament, claiming it's a broken election promise. Nell Whitehead explains. The federal government says it has no plans to overhaul the superannuation system, but it is considering changes which would limit how high-earning Australians can use their super to minimise tax. Here's Assistant Treasurer Stephen Jones. It beggars belief to say a superannuation fund with $100 million in it or more, and there are some with more, is about retirement income. Come on, it's not. It's about tax minimisation, it's about estate management, it's about something else. The government's launched a consultation on changes to superannuation and it's discussing cutting tax concessions for Australians with multi-million dollar funds. But its plans are already under fire. The opposition accuses Labor of breaking its election promises. Angus Taylor is shadow treasurer. This is Australians' money. It's their money, not the government's money. And Labor made a commitment... Before the last election, the Prime Minister made an unambiguous commitment before the last election he wasn't going to run around changing the rules on super. Australians can make voluntary contributions to their super on top of what employers pay, taxed at a rate of 15%. That's well below most marginal tax rates. And then the earnings on their super savings are also taxed at 15% before their retirement. Those low tax rates are designed to help people save enough for retirement, but they also make super 
super an attractive place for wealthy Australians to put their money. Nick Bruning is an independent financial planner. What we're finding is that rather than people using it to pay themselves a retirement income, which they're doing with it, they're also using it as a bit of an estate planning tool. Because if you think about it, it's a very effective way of having a large pot of money being taxed at just 15%, which can ultimately flow through to your kids and your grandkids. And and people are absolutely wise to that. and, And we're finding a lot of super funds are being used for that purpose. The government says its plans to tighten tax concessions only apply to the wealthiest Australians and won't affect the vast majority. 11,000 people have more than $5 million in superannuation funds. We all like to pay as least amount of tax as we can legally. Um, so superannuation is an obvious and relatively simple thing to put your money into. You know that you're going to be taxed at a maximum rate of 15%. And in many cases, when people are properly retired, um, there's no tax on any of it. So uh, that's a, you know who's going, to, who's going to pass that up as an opportunity? The problem is that those concessions are getting expensive. They now cost the budget 52 $5 billion a year. The government says that by 2050, super tax concessions will cost more than the aged pension. I asked the Grattan Institute's chief executive, Danielle Wood, about how the concessions might be curbed. Well, it seems from what the government has said that they are looking at the idea of either capping the size of superannuation accounts or levying additional tax above a certain size balance with your three million being thrown around a lot. Um, so the idea would be that if you have more than that, um, either you're going to need to move the money outside or you're going to pay a higher tax rate. The government says it's trying to meet the cost of essential services. So will this make a difference to the budget bottom line? Well, the proposal's relatively modest. So the, the proposal we're talking about is only raising about a billion dollars in any case. Uh, there are not many better tax opportunities than superannuation out there. So I think the government is right to conclude if you make the tax environment on high balances in super less generous, you will raise money. Uh, Of course, people will always look for tax planning opportunities, but I think uh, there will certainly be a, a contribution to the budget bottom line. The government's also discussing laws to define what superannuation is, which would limit the ability of Australians to dip into their savings before retirement. Nell Whitehead reporting. This is PM. I'm David Lipson. Ahead, Qantas is making a profit again, but don't expect significantly cheaper airfares anytime soon. When Russian tanks rolled across the border with Ukraine on February 24 last year, many predicted Kyiv would fall within weeks, possibly days. Instead, the past year of war has seen fierce Ukrainian resistance, a faltering, at times inept Russian assault, but overall a tragedy, with many tens of thousands dead, millions displaced, and the world in fear of being drawn into something much bigger – Today, the Secretary-General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, spoke of Russia's threats to use nuclear weapons and warned it was high time to step back from the brink. The one-year mark of Russia's invasion of Ukraine stands as a grim milestone for the people of Ukraine and for the international community. That invasion is an affront to our collective conscience, It is a violation of the United Nations Charter and international law. Well, Volodymyr Dubovic is Associate Professor of International Relations 
at Mechnikov National University in Odessa. He was living in Odessa before the war and, like so many Ukrainians, had his own doubts about the Russian president's true intentions in the weeks leading up to February 24. We were not sure that it would happen because when Russian troops appeared in massive numbers on Ukraine's borders for several months, uh, everyone was guessing, like, what's going on? Is it really preparation for massive invasion? Or is it more of a blackmailing, kind of intimidating Ukraine? Uh, I sense that something is in the air and uh, they might, Russians might strike straight at Odessa. And that's why I moved out of Odessa uh, two weeks prior to February 24th and moved to Western Ukraine. At that point of time, most of my uh, people I know were really surprised. They be asking questions like, what, what, what war, what are you talking about? They thought it's unthinkable. It's like uh, not feasible. That is so um, close to my experience when I was in Mariupol in the days before the war. People people thought that I was nuts for for sort of assuming that an invasion was going to happen. Yeah, and uh, not to mention that people didn't know that uh, that would also be meaning a lot of destruction for the cities, a lot of death of civilians and a lot of war crimes and so on. Uh, So no one really expected that. Mm. And in the past year, the the battle for Ukraine has really only intensified more and more lethal war machines and weapons pouring in. China and Russia are now talking about strengthening ties. The US couldn't be clearer about its backing of Ukraine after Biden's visit to Kiev. Is this starting to look like a Cold War? It does. Uh, I mean, everyone has to take a you know side, really. I think some people uh, are kind of prepared for this to be a new Cold War, definitely Americans, but many Europeans are not. And they don't want it uh, to be a new Cold War. There is still a priority on trying to avoid this becoming a new systemic, prolonged confrontation between East and West. And can the West even be so monolithic and so united and coherent like it was in the times of old Cold War? That's an open question. The bravery and professionalism of the Ukrainian soldiers has been a sight to behold. They've surpassed so many expectations. But on the ground in in Ukraine more broadly, can your country sustain this continual bombardment on infrastructure, particularly energy infrastructure? Well, sustaining it, uh, we are, of course, depending now on financial assistance coming from abroad. Uh, quite frankly, Ukrainian economy is in ruins and budget is empty. So whatever we have uh, coming to us in terms of financial assistance, is very much appreciated. It's a, it's a massive challenge. Uh, Ukraine is still sustaining. It's not given up. There's no one talking about the capitulation or surrender. You know, if someone in Kremlin thought that maybe it was a missiles hitting uh, energy power stations, electric power stations, and therefore people being in the coldness and darkness in the middle of winter that would create some kind of, uh, you know, raw uproar, will stir up trouble and people go into the streets and uh, demand that Zelensky quickly signs peace agreement with Russia. They were, of course, mistaken. That was a very strange, naive idea they had in their minds. Only shows that how Russia doesn't really understand Ukrainian Ukrainians. On the contrary, Ukrainians even more solidified and, con- you know, consolidated and even angrier, even more antagonistic to Russia. There's no sign right now that this war will end anytime soon, but but ultimately yes. it has to one way or another. Would Ukraine need some sort of security guarantee after this yes. war from NATO, from the EU, 
or, or right. a, a grouping of, of countries that, or, or militaries? Yeah, I think there should be some lessons drawn from this war, uh, you know, despite Ukrainian heroically resisting Russian invasion still, it's pretty much Ukraine alone and not quite prepared prepared for this invasion so therefore yeah there need to be a combination maybe of options one continue talking about membership in nato for ukraine uh even though there is no really chance uh, of ukraine becoming nato member anytime soon but we need to not abandon this particular uh option for the future in the meantime ukraine is working actively with nato as an alliance with particular member states uh who are really actively supporting ukraine right now it's very intensive cooperation so it's basically nato plus Ukraine, some kind of formula, and in many ways, Ukraine is de facto an inter member without the formal membership. So, therefore, we're not looking for another meaning, meaningless document, kind of empty, hollow document that wouldn't guarantee our security. We're looking for some more binding, more serious uh, guarantees. But uh, other countries ready to provide it to Ukraine? That's an open question, but we should have this discussion. Volodymyr Dubovik, great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you, David. And Volodymyr Dubovik is an associate professor at Mechnikov National University in Odessa. Well, now for a look at how this war is being seen and felt in Russia. Bobo Lowe is an independent international relations analyst and non-resident fellow at the Lowy Institute. He's written a number of books about Russia and Moscow's relationship with China. And he joins me now. Bobo, what does this first anniversary of the war look like from Vladimir Putin's perspective? Well, thank you. Um, uh, the first year has been a, a rough year for, for Putin, for Russia, but because um, he's achieved none of his major goals. He's, there have been huge setbacks. The West's reaction has been much more united and determined uh, than he uh, calculated for. However, although there have been setbacks, Putin is in for the long haul. Um, everything is to play for. The stakes are enormous and he will do everything that it takes to win this war. And ultimately, despite all the military and diplomatic setbacks that Russia has faced, Putin believes that they will win and he will win. What's your best read on the sentiments of ordinary Russian people in regards to this conflict, especially since they started being drafted to this so-called special operation? Well, clearly they're not enthusiastic about the war. However, they are broadly supportive because what the Putin regime has done quite well is to sell the idea that this is a great patriotic war. It's not only targeting so-called uh, neo-Nazis in Ukraine, but it's also set against a hostile West. So in other words, it's not just about Ukraine, it's about a much larger confrontation between Russia and the West, and in particular, the United States. Um, so most of the public have either bought this story or are certainly not prepared to contest it. Um, many of those who would have contested it of course, have now left the country. And we heard just there from Volodymyr about the Ukrainian economy now being in ruins. Are the sanctions on Russia working? 
Well, it depends what you uh, mean by working. Uh, the short-term effect has been considerable, but bearable. I think the biggest problem from Russia's perspective about sanctions is uh, long-term. It's the degradation of its technological and um, economic uh, capabilities in the, in the long haul. Um, you also have to ask, when you say effective, what does effective mean? Does a does effective mean uh, that they have bite? Yes, they have had bite. But does effect or does effective mean has it been have they been successful in um, uh, shaping Moscow's behaviour for the beha uh, for, for the best? And that's clearly not happened. You also have to ask with sanctions, what's the alternative? If the West had not imposed sanctions, then the whole idea of a rules-based international order or even of a unitary West would have been nonsense. What do you make of China's role here now? There's been talk that China may help arm Russia in the conflict, though Beijing denies it. What's really going on? Well, Beijing uh, has had a quite difficult war, contrary to those who argue that it's been a prime beneficiary. I think this has actually been quite difficult for Beijing because really it's had to try and straddle two objectives. One is to keep the Russians on side because the strategic partnership between Beijing and Moscow really matters. But on the other hand, uh, China is dependent on the existing international system, existing international order. So it has a vested interest in stability and order, unlike Russia, which is really, in a sense, an arsonist of the international system. So what the Chinese have, have tried to balance are these two contradictory uh, goals. Um, so I wouldn't totally rule out the possibility of Chinese arms to Russia, although I think it, it's certainly inconsistent with Xi Jinping's recent efforts to uh, butter up the Europeans. Um, but um, I think if there is any Chinese assistance, it will be principally symbolic and have very little impact on the battlefield. Bobo Lowe, I'd love to get more of your insights, but we'll have to leave it there. Really appreciate your time, though. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you. And Bobo Lowe is an independent international relations analyst and non-resident fellow at the Lowy Institute. An Australian professor remains captive in Papua New Guinea alongside two colleagues, but a woman who was taken hostage at the same time has now been freed. The professor, an Australian permanent resident and New Zealand citizen, was captured while doing fieldwork in the remote highlands, PNG's Prime Minister is urging the criminals involved to release their hostages, as Alexandra Humphreys reports. After researchers were taken at gunpoint, Papua New Guinea's Prime Minister James Marape has announced a female hostage has now been released. Work remains underway to safely retrieve the anthropology professor and two others taken by kidnappers as they performed fieldwork on the borders of the Hela and Southern Highlands province. Uh, you have no place to hide. All of you, your names and your face are being profiled as we speak. In fact, we today, as I speak, we have over 13 names and pictures of all of you in the mountains. The professor works for an Australian university. The gang has demanded a ransom for the release of the hostages. 
PNG's police commissioner says he believes they are in reasonable health, but being held in difficult terrain. Dr Sinclair Dinan is from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs. He says PNG authorities will be keenly aware of the international attention. I think there's a great deal of pressure on the police to achieve a resolution to to this particular case because of the involvement of a foreigner. According to Dr Dinan, kidnappings in the area aren't unheard of and violence has long been an issue in PNG's highlands. I mean, there certainly have been kidnappings in the past, although these often have gone sort of unremarked. For different reasons, they they could be very local. Uh, Sometimes they, you know, they've been in relation to disputes around resource projects. They haven't often involved foreigners. He says firearms are widely available and limited police presence makes it hard to stamp out. Violence often is a way of getting things done. In other words, violence can, can work. Um, for criminals with relatively, you know, low chances of, of being apprehended. Dr Dinan says the recent national elections were marred by violence, driven by a desire to access resources and development. There, There is, um, you know, a lot of unhappiness in areas which are essentially characterised by lack of development and poverty and, and relatively few legitimate opportunities for people advancing materially or, or, you know, having the funds to enable their children to go to school. Ruth Kissam is a community organiser and human rights advocate. Right across the board, everyone needs to feel safe in this country and that's the thing that we're not. So... I feel like the government is not doing enough to protect our people and I don't know if they have it in them to even do any more to protect experts or people for foreigners that are coming in and whether they're coming in as tourists or they're coming in as professionals, uh, more needs to be done. She says communities used to hold each other accountable when authorities were unable to do so. There, that is not there anymore. In the absence of ru- uh, the rule of law, a strong rule of law, We used to have, you know, community ownership and accountability. And that was what kept this country going right at our core. Another foreigner who had been working in the same remote area has been moved to safety. He was not held hostage at any stage. Alexandra Humphreys and Belinda Cora reporting there. Well, after heavy losses during the pandemic, Qantas today announced a billion-dollar half-year profit But don't expect cheaper airfares as a result. The CEO, Alan Joyce, says the national carrier's service standards are bouncing back and it'll continue to charge premium prices. Samantha Donovan reports. The news Qantas has recorded a billion-dollar half-year profit didn't go down well with some travellers at Darwin Airport today. Why can't they put some of that back in so that customers... We've been loyal to Qantas over many, many years that it doesn't seem right that people like us are stuffed around. Well, I think it's great that we're making money. It means they're going to survive. It's just unfortunate that uh, the cost of getting to where they are now has been a lot of inconvenience with a lot of people. Um, I just spent 80,000 frequent flyer points for my son and I to fly here one way. I think they have considerable problems in that back office, and I think they should uh, spend some money on that. 
look at customer service. Qantas acknowledges its domestic fares have gone up by about 20% since 2021 and says it's the same in markets like the US and Europe. CEO Alan Joyce points to the price of fuel as the main driver of the high prices. It's up 65%, he says, since 2019. But with Australians keen to travel despite cost of living concerns, Mr Joyce says the billion dollar profit for the airline doesn't mean fares will come down. He maintains the market sets the price, not the airline. Qantas cannot uh, dictate the airfares in the market and we've had more competition domestically and we compete against 58 carriers internationally. We will, but we will charge a premium for the Qantas product and we won't balk at charging that premium because it is a bigger value proposition. Quentin Long is the co-founder of AustralianTraveller.com. He says his readers often complain about the cost of Qantas fares from Sydney to London and Sydney to Melbourne and the cost of getting in and out of Darwin is a common gripe. But he believes travellers will soon be paying a little less. Overall fares will gently come down, but we're never going to return to the 2019 prices that we became so accustomed to for quite some time. Oil prices are significantly increased because of the war in the Ukraine, but also, you know, staffing levels have still a bit constrained. The other thing that not many people are talking about is that pre-pandemic, we had five Chinese carriers in the Australian market that were putting a lot of downward pressure on airfares, particularly to Europe, and they haven't returned. So there still is that lack of capacity. Despite Qantas getting back to its capacity, the overall market servicing Australia, particularly international, hasn't returned. And until that does, you won't get some real downward pressure on on international airfares into Australia. So you're saying Alan Joyce is right, it's the market that sets the price, not the airline? Look, aviation is very much a supply and demand market. So when you have incredible demand and constrained supply, you're obviously going to see prices go up. The easiest way for prices to come down is if we stop paying. If we stop paying what they're charging, then prices will come down. All indicators are that people are now really like, 2022 was around revenge travel, which is I don't care, I just need to travel and I'm just going to pay what I have to. 2023, people have become accustomed to this idea of inflated prices. They're now budgeting for them and therefore you're starting to see that come in, that we will pay these prices and that, you know, constrained supply without international competition really pushing Qantas. They don't have any real motivation to change their pricing. That's Quentin Long from theaustraliantraveller.com and that report from Samantha Donovan and Jess Randall. Well, that's the program for today. Thanks for joining us on PM. I'm David Lipson. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Until then, good night. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. When Vladimir Putin started his war in Ukraine, he said it was all about fighting Nazis. But in a two-hour televised diatribe this week, he's widened the scope. Today, foreign correspondents Eric Campbell on Putin's crazy propaganda and the Russian journalists who've escaped to try and counter the lies. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.